both the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ are true and divine. However, there is a distinction between them which is significant. Both the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ are true and divine. And there is an essential relationship between them that is significant and very important. Did you ever have to make up your mind? Both, Both the, gospel the gospel of Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ and the church, and the of, church Jesus of Jesus Christ are true and, and divine. However, there is a distinction between them. An essential relationship. The distinction between them. An essential relationship. It's not often easy and not often kind. Distinction. An essential relationship. Distinction. An essential relationship. Distinction, which is significant. Significant and very important. Did you ever have to finally decide? You can't touch this. You can't touch this. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. Philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. After your faith has let you down. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and today I'm going to talk to you about culture. And the first thing I'm going to do is share with you another little mini smackdown that I did of our good friend, our, our newest bestest friend, the anti-Mormon crusader at large, extraordinaire, Jeremy Goff. Now, I'm going to make some announcements first, but eventually, you know, Jeremy did one of his anti-Mormon myths, lies, and rumors episode on <laughs> the difference between Mormon culture and gospel culture. And so I went through that last week and did a smackdown as one of our uh, sharing time Patreon only episodes. But uh, I got this response from one of our patrons. Um, I want to read this. This is from Dan. It was really nice. I appreciate you writing this, Dan. Dan said, I think this is some of the best content on Infants on Thrones. I'm really enjoying Glenn's anthropological perspective that he shares with us and seeing that evolve over the years. And it's still as funny as ever. <laughs> so. You're the best Thanks, Dan, for that. It made me think, you know, I, I mean, there is content that is created for patrons only. There's probably, I don't know, we've been doing Patreon for over a year now. We started it in June of 2017. So there's probably at least 25, 30 episodes on Patreon that aren't available to non-Patreon subscribers. And I've started getting more regular with that, doing weekly uh, bonus episodes over the last maybe month and a half, two months. So... Promote, promote. If you like this episode and you want to hear more like it, there are more like it on Patreon, where for as little as $1 per episode, at whatever level you want to max that out for the month, you can say thank you to Infants on Thrones and give me even more incentive to make this kind of stuff. Anyway, so that's what today's episode is going to be about. I'm also going to have an extended Easter egg, which I will explain um, in just a moment. But I also, I've been getting emails from people saying, when the hell are you going to do this whole listener essay contest? You said it was going to be July. You said you were going to do a songwriters contest. 
yes, Greg, I've gotten your emails. I'm sorry I haven't responded and I don't have any more news. But now I do. Now I've got news for you. November. I'm going to do it in November. Um, so I've got probably, I mean, I haven't counted. There's over 10 listener essays already. There have been a few more that have come in over the last couple of weeks. If you would like to have a listener essay on Infants on Thrones, um, maybe we'll have content for every single day of November. Something to be thankful for. Maybe something to not. Who knows how good they'll be. But uh, we'll do the listener essay contest. Uh, and once again, the, the winner of that will get $200. Second place will get $100. Third place will get 50 So you've got a little bit of uh, spending change going into the Christmas season to help supplement the giving that you give to others who you love. Uh, so we'll be doing a listener essay contest again starting in November, and that will also include the songwriting contest. So any of you who have submitted songs, I've got maybe seven or eight of those, but it's been a while. It was probably May or June that you submitted them. Um, if you wouldn't mind also submitting maybe five, ten minutes worth of your own listener essay uh, type thing that explains what the song is, why you wrote it, what it means to you, and we'll include those as part of the listener essay, listener content month of November. All right, so today we're going to be talking about culture while listening to instrumental cuts from the Culture Club. Boy George and the cult, the culture, you get the culture club, you the culture club. Got it? We're going to be smacking down Jeremy Goff. And uh, so let's first start with a definition of culture. I mean, what is culture? And I'm going to take this from the Merriam Webster dictionary. So it says that culture, definition one, is the customary beliefs social forms, and material traits of a racial, religious, or social group. Also, the characteristic features of everyday existence, such as diversions or a way of life, that are shared by people in a place or time. Pretty broad definition there, huh? Think about things that we do. Daily prayer, fast and testimony meeting, taking the sacrament, priesthood blessings, doing home teaching or visiting teaching or ministering or whatever they call it today, wearing specific types of clothes on Sunday, keeping the Sabbath day holy, having our traditional hymns and primary songs, using specific words and phrases and yada, yada, yada. There's a million things that Mormons do that show, yes, there is a shared Mormon culture. Attitudes, values, Beliefs, you know, the, the premortal existence, a belief in spirit matter, three degrees of glory, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost as distinct physical personalities, Joseph Smith as a prophet, modern day prophets, latter day scripture, again, yada, yada, yada. There's a millions of these things. Mormons definitely have their shared customs, beliefs, social forms, material traits, etc., etc., etc. Some of these have been formalized. They've been canonized and made an official part of the institution, while others remain informal, folk beliefs that live outside of the official hollowed howls, <laughs> halls of the church. They're on the periphery. But regardless of whether they're official or unofficial, they are all traditional parts of Mormon culture. So where exactly do you draw the line 
between something that is culture and something that is not culture, something that's more than culture, because Jeremy Goff's going to be talking about Mormon culture versus gospel culture, and maybe they're both kinds of cultures, but what is he going to be doing here? I, I think that the answer to that, at least the way that I came to understand it as I was going through all of this shelf-breaking faith crisis part while I was a graduate student studying folklore at Indiana University, is that culture you can look at as being something that's man-made, whereas something that's not culture in the church, especially, you would look at as being God-made, something that's divine, something that's eternal, something that's outside of man-made. But even if it's man-implemented, I think that's the distinction. But honestly, what in the church, or anywhere really, when we're talking about customs and beliefs, etc., etc., what of these things did not find its origin in a human mind? You know, for me, as I was going through this and I was struggling with it, at first I thought, well, there's attitudes. I can, I can look at attitudes. I can, I can think that there are certain attitudes that members of the church have that I can criticize, um, and those I'm going to say they're part of Mormon culture. It's part of false traditions. But attitudes that I did like, that I thought were in harmony with the gospel, I would say, okay, this is, this is not part of Mormon culture, or maybe this is part of gospel culture. Maybe this is okay. For example, I, I, my, my uh, first mother-in-law, my ex-mother-in-law, I remember being in the car with her once, driving in her neighborhood, and she said something like, there's a lot of celestial people that are living in this neighborhood. And I went, oh, really? That's so judgy. You know, the celestial people? That, I would have said, okay, that's Mormon culture. That's bad. That's an attitude that's bad. That's not an attitude that we should have. So I would call that Mormon culture. Whereas uh, around the same time, President Hinckley gave a talk in General Conference where he told the story of a woman who wasn't Mormon, and some kids played a trick on her, and they threw a frozen turkey at her car, and it smashed through her windshield, lacerated her face. She was just in horrible shape. And she ended up forgiving the boys that had thrown the turkey and have this really loving experience. And so an attitude like that, an attitude of forgiveness, I would say that attitude right there, that's consistent with the scriptures, that's divine, that's eternal, that's not part of Mormon culture, that's part of the gospel. So that's how I would have made that distinction years ago. On my mission, I could look at missionaries around me that were being super pushy or really interested in their own political advancement within the mission. I was really critical of that. So one one zone leader towards the end of my mission, and I've told the story before on the podcast, but he, he said in the next two months, because he was going home in two months, in the next two months, between the six of us missionaries, we're going to have 12 baptisms. And at the time, we only had one investigator between the six of us. And this was Japan. And it wasn't a place where you had a lot of success. <laughs> and I, I just thought, man, this is, this is not going to work. And I voiced it. And he didn't like that I voiced my doubts of his plans. And I thought he was just being way, way, way too pushy. And that's something that I would have said, oh, that's part of this culture that I don't like. Of course, at the same time, maybe a year earlier than this, I was using the same type of pushy techniques on one of my investigators named Cabo who I interviewed for Mormon Expression 
many years ago, and I think that interview still exists out there somewhere. But at one point in the conversation, we were talking about when I committed him to baptism and how pushy I was. And I got to hear him explain it from his point of view, and I already kind of recognized it myself, but I was able to justify it that my customary behavior of pushiness was in harmony with the gospel because I was trying to bring him to the gospel. And this is what missionaries are supposed to do. So I was able to excuse that while I was condemning something very similar that another missionary was doing just because I didn't like it. So my conclusion with this whole talking about church culture versus doctrine or versus the gospel is that what's really happening is that you're saying there's certain things that I'm able to critique And I'm going to call that culture. But there's some things that are just too sacred, too important to critique. And I'm going to put that outside of culture. You know, one one more example of this. I remember as a graduate student, we were studying a book called The Golden Bough by Sir James Frazier. And he was talking about something called sympathetic magic that is found in many, many cultures throughout the world. And sympathetic means that there is a sympathy, there's a connection between two objects or more objects through space, through time, so that there's some kind of an impact that can happen even if these uh, objects are not touching. Um, And so it's kind of like this spooky influence, right? And there were two different branches of sympathetic magic that he talked about. One was homeopathic magic, and what that means is Uh, homeo that there's a similarity that there's a likeness and that's what creates this spooky connection at a distance so um, there's beliefs for example that if you eat walnuts those are good for your brain why because a walnut looks like a brain Um, voodoo dolls voodoo dolls are based on this idea of homeopathy, of similarity, of likeness. You create the likeness of somebody, you stick a pin in them, and then their stomach actually hurts because there's been this sympathetic connection through space and time, through the magic. Another branch of the sympathetic magic is called contagious magic, or the law of contagion, which has to do with touching. So the essence or virtue of someone or something is transferred from an object that it's come into contact with. So if you carry with you a piece of the cross, I'm doing air quotes, uh, that Jesus was hung on. You know, that's a Catholic tradition. I've got a piece of the original cross. Or uh, a friend of mine, even when they were baptizing their kids, they, uh, they had, had gone to Israel for a study abroad at BYU, and they brought back uh, some water from the River Jordan. And so whenever they would baptize one of their kids, they would pour the water into the baptismal font just to kind of have it be a little extra special. That's that's contact, that's the law of contact, it's that specialness, that magic from having touched something in some place at some time, etc., etc. So as I was studying this, it was very easy for me to understand these concepts when I was looking at other cultures. And one day it just dawned on me. I was thinking about the sacrament. I was thinking about priesthood blessings and consecrated oil and going holy shit, we do exactly the same thing. Having this sympathetic magic, something that can heal someone or forgive you of your sins, uh, that comes from, from what? And I thought about the sacrament as being, you know, having elements of both this homeopathic, well, maybe not the homeopathic likeness, maybe a little bit that, you know, you, you're using water 
uh, as a likeness of blood and it's a liquid, maybe, maybe for that. Um, pieces of bread as pieces of flesh, maybe. Um, but what what's that eyelet lace thing for? You know, when, when you do the sacrament in church, I mean, I haven't been gone so long that I don't remember what this process is. When it's time to bless the bread, you take this little eyelet thing and you uh, remove it, you uncover the bread so that the bread is in full view of the heavens, so that the magical rays from above can come down and infuse themselves into the bread without that damn eyelet cover blocking them. And the eyelet cover is very effective because it keeps those bread blessings from heaven away from the water where they're not supposed to be. You know, when it's shining down on the deacons, <laughs> priests, and teachers that are there to, to pass the sacrament. It doesn't get where it's not supposed to be. And then after you do the, the bread, then you cover the bread back up and you uncover the water. And once again, that eyelet cover just keeps it protected from blessings that shouldn't be there. I mean, what is that? What is that? if not magic. What is it that we say that olive oil, and especially extra virgin olive oil, that it is a likeness, it's got a homeopathy for purity because it's pure oil. And plus, we have uh, blessed it and and we touch it with our hands and we touch it with our hands that have been, um, you know, our, our whole body as priesthood holders, we trace back lineage to the very first Melchizedek priesthood holder that gave our father and father's father and father father, wherever it goes back the lineage, ultimately to Jesus. That's an example of contagion. They touched each other on the head and that gives me the power and now I put that over this oil. So I started recognizing we've got this same kind of culture in Mormonism. And uh, the, the shelf sagged a little bit more. There's so many of these things that I could talk about, that I could share. So yeah, there definitely is a thing (laughs) of Mormon culture. And is it really possible to draw a line between what is man-made and what's not man-made? The more you learn, the more you understand, the the more that line creeps and you start to see, wait, it's all man-made. It's all man-made. Every single thing in the church is man-made. And that's something that, of course, the leaders don't want you to think or believe, because then what does it do to their mantle of authority? Uh, Several years ago, several years ago, Scott and I did an episode for Mormon Expression, where we invited on James Rogers and Rock Waterman, and we talked about the Elder Pullman talk. And many of you probably already know this. Many of you have probably already heard this. But it's such an interesting story because Elder Pullman in 1984, he was a general authority, and he gave what was to many people a very refreshing talk where he made a distinction between church culture and the gospel. And he said that the church culture is pretty much man-made. It's, it's important, but it's more of a teaching tool. It's more of a means to an end. It's a delivery system for the gospel. So things like the clothes that you wear or whether or not you have tattoos or multiple ear piercings, all of that are part of church culture. And if you enforce like a Western American culture onto cultures in Asia or Europe where they have different customs, different practices, you can be exclusionary. And we don't want to be exclusionary. That's not really what this is about. What it's about is the gospel. And the gospel, which, according to Pullman's view, 
exists outside of culture because it's not man-made. It's divine laws, eternal values, truths that go beyond anything man-made. So that's what he was trying to do in his talk. But the 12 apostles, whoever, the, the church leaders at that time, they did not like it. They thought that even what Elder Pullman did over the pulpit and general conference was taking things too far. There was too much separation that he was creating between culture and the so-called non-culture, the realm of the profane and the realm of the divine with the church. So the church made him rewrite the talk and re-deliver it in an empty tabernacle with a cough track in the background to make it sound like he was delivering this at General Conference. Very deceptive, very disingenuous, very dishonest. So I am going to include that episode as an extended Easter egg after we finish here with my smackdown of Elder Goff. But I wanted to give this, you know, these are things I, I probably talked about Man, I've been doing this for a long time, but I've, I'm sure I've talked about these things before, but I don't know that I've ever really done it in one episode like this. So I wanted to do that as a preface before sharing with you this Patreon-only content that I created that was a smackdown of Jeremy Goff. And then after that, we'll go Elder Pullman, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, for those of you that are interested in joining us for a live recording this upcoming Sunday night, we're going to be doing a smackdown of a hard-to-find Mormon video. And I think the one that we're going to do is Man's Search for Happiness. Um, So if you'd like to join us on Patreon, we record that at 10 p.m. Eastern. 10 p.m. Eastern time. If you're a member of Patreon, uh, we'll give you the link to be able to join us on the Patreon page. And until then, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get right to it now. Welcome back to Infant Nursery Hour with your host, Glenn Ostland. It's sharing time. Hey there, Patreon supporters of Infants on Thrones. This is Glenn Ostland, and I'm in Orlando. Orlando! Yes, that is what I said. Um, But today what I wanted to do is um, another review of Jeremy Goff and his anti-Mormon lies thing. And it's funny because I watched it and I really appreciated what he was saying. I, I, um, I related with a lot of it. Um, I remember when I was, uh, in a similar place, I was never exactly Jeremy Goff. (laughs) I was never exactly Jeremy Goff, but so his, his most recent post that he put out last Sunday uh, was the difference between Mormon culture and gospel culture. And I went, ooh, okay, (laughs) this sounds interesting. He didn't really get into it quite what I was hoping uh, that that he would in dissecting these different cultures. Uh, That's something that I'll do at another time. But, um, so anyway, uh, let's listen to what Jeremy has to say, and I will be jumping in here from time to time. You know the drill. Hello, everyone. This is Jeremy Goff with another edition of Dispelling Anti-Mormon Lies, Myths, and Rumors. Which he doesn't actually do today. This is kind of more of a, uh, he's got the Mormon church in the crosshairs on this one, which is kind of interesting. So no anti-Mormon lies or rumors or whatever the other thing was. It's a three pattern, you know. 
Today I'm going to be talking about the difference between Mormon culture and gospel culture. This wasn't the topic I was going to be addressing, or planned on addressing today, but it's a topic I feel like I need to address. He feels, he feels that he needs to address this, which is code for the Spirit is prompting me so that this is coming not from me, Jeremy Goff, because I had something else completely planned uh, to talk about, but the Spirit is prompting me to talk about this other thing, so listen up, people. And, you know, the difference between Mormon culture and gospel culture... um, you know, I I, <laughs> I don't know if this is the right place for this insert or not, but I, I, I would really love, I don't think I'm ever going to do this, but I'd really love to do some kind of a survey where I just pick a hundred believing Mormons at once and ask them um, to give me some examples of some things that are gospel culture. And I'll put them in a, a column on a piece of paper that I label gospel culture, and I'll draw a line down the the middle of the paper, and then on the other side, I'll do Mormon culture, and what's that? And then compare of these hundred people, what what are the things that they put in gospel? What are the things that they put in Mormon? It's not going to be consistent. That line between Mormon culture and gospel culture is really, really porous. Um, in fact, the line doesn't even really exist. They're all it's all Mormon culture. But anyway, I'm interested to hear what. Brother Goff, Elder Goff, has to say, and if you're watching his video, Jeremy, your garments are showing. Today, in my state conference, Elder Holland actually came and visited and shared a story. The Elder Holland? The very, the, he came? Wow. So, right off the bat with the appeal to the authority figure, you know, one of the things that I was thinking of is um, if he's going to be tackling the subject of... Uh, Mormon culture versus gospel culture, what's your source of authority? You, you know, or not authority, but just like how how are you making definitions on what, uh, how to parse out elements of culture? What's your training? What's your background? What's your methodology going to be? So I think right here, it's a suggestion that it's like whatever Elder Holland says. So that this is probably going to be the authority here. I don't know. Let's see. Let's find out. It, it was the Elder Holland, by the way, and he spoke at Jeremy's place, a state conference. So Jeremy's kind of connected, I just if you guys didn't know. That's why he's got so many followers. He gets to bask at the feet of great men who aren't dodos like Elder Holland. And uh, yeah, I, I really shouldn't be snarky about this because I actually really appreciate most of what Jeremy's going to be saying here, and I don't want that to be tarnished by my snarkiness. I just can't help it. I can't, I can't, I can't help it. Sorry. My weakness. That's my bad. My, my bad. And because of that story that Elder Holland shared at my state conference. Wait a minute. The Elder Holland, he came to your state conference? Whoa. I feel the desire to, and the need to share this topic. And so before we get started, just like normal, if you all want to do any uh, shout outs for where you're from, I'll try to go ahead and give you guys a shout out saying welcome. But let me go ahead and get started. So the difference between gospel culture and Mormon culture is actually a pretty big difference, and it's a pretty important difference, too. It's big and important. I think I've heard that somewhere before. Praise to the man who's so big and important. We can only hope to be as big and important as him. Um, what illustrates this the best, 
I would say would be what my mission president told me when he had his homecoming from his second mission. He served a mission in New Zealand, and in New Zealand, he had a bunch of converts that were there, and these were YSAs who were struggling to live the gospel. And they had Maori culture, and they had these traditions that were not compatible with the gospel. And they had a testimony meeting, and one of the uh, Maori young single adults stood up, and he told my mission president, he goes, I figured out what I need to do. What I need to do is I need to ask myself, what part of my Maori culture can fit within the gospel, and what part does not? And the part that does not is false, and I need to let go of it. And the part that does is a part that I can embrace. Which is called cultural imperialism, and I'm not a big fan of that. Um, but we'd need more specifics to know exactly what traditions aren't in harmony with the gospel culture. Is it, is it sleeping with girls, Jeremy? Is it the sex stuff? I don't know. Or uh, Maori stick out their tongues a lot, and that's not polite. And tattoos. Is that what it is? They're sticking out their tongues too much? And tattoos. That's not consistent with God. I don't know. Tattoos. I don't know what, I don't know, really know what we're talking about. When he said and shared that story, a light went on in my head. That's the same with Mormon culture. Now, Mormon culture gets a bad rap. Mormon, Mormon rap. And a good rap. Depending on where you're coming from. Orlando. But today, I'd like to go ahead and kind of dissect it just a touch. Because Mormon culture, as far as it aligns with gospel culture, is completely fine. But is it really, Jeremy? And, I mean, you're calling it Mormon culture. Don't you follow the prophet? Shouldn't it be called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint culture? You could easily call it church culture instead of Mormon culture here. Um, maybe you're being sloppy, or maybe, or maybe you're being brilliant. Because maybe what you're planning on doing is that you really want to flush the turd of Mormon culture down the toilet, so you're attaching the word Mormon to it, since it's going away anyway. It, I mean, it's already gone. There is no Mormon church, right? There's no Mormon anything. I mean, it's just, what, Mormon? What? Who? What? No? Hmm? Mormon? It's Mormon. No, it's not Mormon. If the Mormon culture is saying, hey, the culture right now is we're all going to go out and do service, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But if the Mormon culture is going to say, hey, I'm going to go ahead and judge you because you're sinning differently than I am, then that's not the gospel. And this is the part that I really appreciate. I really, really genuinely appreciate that you're calling out the judgmental aspects of Mormon culture and saying, this isn't something that we should be doing, Mormons. Bravo. Bravo. Yay. Yay. So it's really important that we learn that distinction in between the gospel culture and the Mormon culture, because the distinguish without making that distinction, there's a lot of issues that can come into play. I'm going to share part of the story that Elder Holland shared at State Conference today with us. He shared a story, and he said that he was recently sitting in his office, and his assistant came into the room and said that there was a call on the line, and it was from a brother that he had not heard from for 60 years. And this brother was uh, someone Elder Holland knew from growing up. When he was growing up, this young man was an athletic rival of Elder Holland's. And they weren't on the best of terms, and they kind of competed. And this uh, brother decided he was going to share his story with Elder Holland. He mentioned that when he was growing up, his dad was the alcoholic and would beat his mom and his siblings, and that he would try to stand up to them and try to protect them. And he started to feel overwhelmed, and he felt a desire and a need for support and strength in doing this. And so he realized he had been baptized when he was eight. He had never been ordained to the priesthood. And he's decided, I'm going to go to the church. I'm going to go to the church and see if they'll help me 
in a situation where my dad is abusive and my mom is the victim and my siblings need help. I'm going to see if, if I can go find some strength and some, some support. And so Elder Holland recounted that this young man went and decided he was going to go to church that Sunday. And he put on the best clothes he had, but they were very poor until they weren't even Sunday clothes. And he walked into the sacrament room and sacrament meeting hadn't started yet. And one of the members saw him and turned to him and told him, what are you doing here? Did you lose your game last night? Elder Holland said that that stung that young man so badly that he left and he didn't come back. Wait, 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 what? I don't get it. What, what is, what does that mean? Um, that you lost your game last night, and how is that tied to him not wearing Sunday, like proper Sunday attire? I don't, I don't really get it, Jeremy. But okay, I'm, I'll follow you. So the guy was offended. So, so this, this guy was offended, and he left the church. Yeah, I, I know that narrative. So okay, that, that's the story here. He got offended by a member. He became an alcoholic when he grew older. His marriage was ruined because of it. His children suffered because of it. Wow, that's a that's a lot of pretty serious things that happened from a member saying, "What what's wrong? Did you lose the game last night?" I don't know. I don't. I don't, I don't quite. All right. All right. All right. I'll shut up. Go ahead, go ahead, keep, continue. Elder Holland addressed that that incident today at state conference. He addressed that and he said that that person did not understand what they were doing. Which person didn't understand what they were? Could you be a little more specific? He didn't, they did not understand that what they were doing was going to have that much of an impact. And something that we need to understand is, yes, we're supposed to carry the church forward, but we don't need to defend its sacredness. We don't need to defend it in, from people who are sinners. Okay, I think I understand what you're saying here. I think what you're saying is that the the member who said the stupid thing about you lost the game last night felt that he had to protect the church from a sinner who was sinning by wearing non-church clothes. And you, and what you're saying is that that isn't really a sin. That's not something that people should criticize. Um, that's a bad thing. You're calling that out. but And then you're kind of conflating it with sinning, too, all in the same breath. But I, I think... I think I follow what you're saying, and if, if you're saying what I think you're saying, that members need to stop nitpicking and criticizing people, um, and that that's the Mormon culture that you're calling out here, I, I still appreciate it. I still do. I appreciate that, Jeremy. And I appreciate you. I really do. We should, go, we should have lunch sometime. I'd really enjoy that. An example of that, that is a personal one of mine, that I'd like to share, of defending the church and actually driving away the children of God actually comes from myself and my boss. See, my boss is a non-member, and I've been good friends with him for a very long time. And he has admitted to me that he's always thought of the idea that it'd be very interesting to go to a temple, and he'd fancied the idea of one day he would, what am I getting sealed in the temple? Wait, he said that? He was a non-member, and he said that he fancied the idea of someday being sealed in the temple? That, I don't, I don't know. I, I think maybe you're hearing things. Maybe you're reading into stuff. I, that, that sounds kind of strange to me. But, okay, I will suspend my disbelief. Continue your story. So when the Provo City Center had its open house, I thought, this is my golden opportunity. Yeah. And so I went with my boss to the City Center open house. 
and we watched the little video at the beginning of the temple tour and I turned to him afterwards I'm like so does that answer any of your questions he goes answered some but gave me so many more and so we started talking we started discussing the temple as we walked and got into got into the actual temple itself because we're outside watching the videos we entered the temple lobby and he asked me he goes so why would someone want to do baptisms for the dead and I start to explain to him about eternal families when this old lady in front of me turns around and goes shh be quiet you're in the temple and the spirit just left the spirit left because it got shushed huh yeah <laughs> i i think i understand the uh biochemistry that's going on there but yeah i get it okay and i had a similar experience i'll i'll tell you about it once you finish cuz you you are a really good storyteller jeremy i i really love hearing your stories i mean some people have like numchuck skills and you know whatnot you've got storytelling skills mad storytelling skills like riveting out the fetching yin yang like riveting storytelling so let's get back to your storytelling mad skills i hope we get a liger coming out of one of these stories and we went through the temple open house and we got out of the temple and i asked him i'm like so how was the temple did you like it do you have any questions about it and he goes it was interesting i can check it off my bucket list he goes i only have one question why was that lady so rude right because he had lots of questions before and then the lady shushed him and then all of his questions went away with the spirit it was like it was all gone man what a story and that was a hard question to answer and the answer to that question is because she thought she was defending the temple and she was kind of a self-righteous turd now i have a story that i want to share with you jeremy I probably won't tell it quite as good, but it also involves an old self-righteous turd at the temple. And it was one of the last times I went through the temple. It was in Mesa, Arizona. And if you don't know, the Mesa, Arizona temple is a multi-story temple. And the, the, the endowment room that I was in was on the second floor. That's going to that's gonna be an important detail for later on. I'm setting something up. It's, it's part of storytelling. So I was, uh, you know how, I, I know you're not supposed to talk about the temple outside the temple, but I don't give a shit. So there's this uh, stuff that you're supposed to put on and wear, and you've got a packet of clothes that are with you, and, but there's no place to put them. Like, what, what do you do? You, you put it on your lap? Do you put it on the armrest next to you? And you've got to stand up and sit down and stand up and sit down. So, you know, the lap's not the most convenient place to put it. So I was sitting on the end because I usually like to sit on the end of rows because I've got long legs and I just like being on the end. I've got more room to to put my legs out on the side that way. And uh, so I set down the little packet of clothes that were still in their little cloth packet on the floor. And I heard not a shush, but a... And I turned around and I looked and there was this self-righteous turd of an old guy behind me that was tisking me telling me to get that packet of clothes off of the floor. And I felt the spirit leave. I mean, it wasn't the spirit leaving as much as it was my own internal disgust and anger uh, (laughs) welling up inside of me, which is probably what pushes the spirit away, because the spirit's pretty, 
fragile that way. You know, it doesn't like being around with, with the, the anger and the contention and things like that. And um, I just was thinking, why is this guy being such an asshole about this? You know, this isn't the American flag touching the ground that then you have to burn it after you. Like, you have to burn the American flag after it touches the ground, right? This idea of desecration. You're desecrating something holy. So I agree with your premise here that they feel like they're defending the temple from desecration, from impurity. Um, But I was just thinking, what am I even desecrating? It's still in the cloth bag. None of the actual sacred garments are touching the floor. Plus, this is carpet inside the temple. I'm sure they clean it on a regular basis. It's probably very, very clean. And what's the What's the point of it being on the floor anyway? It isn't even ground level. This is this is why it's important to know that it was on the second story. It was it was about twenty feet in the air, so not even where dirt is. So what what are the mechanisms that are even desecrating this thing that this guy would have to tisk me in the first place that I put it on the ground because where our feet go? I don't understand it, and it just ruined that experience of the temple for me. Um. I, I And then I started feeling bad that I was so mean to that self-righteous turd of an old guy. But um, yeah, so I get it. I get it. I understand. I also have seen these things that you're seeing, and I've criticized them. And I don't want to scare you, Jeremy. But it's kind of what started me down the path where I eventually went, uh, you know... The line between what I think is church culture and just these bad habits of people and but the true gospel message, that line is so thin and actually doesn't exist when I realized that. Oh boy, that created a lot of problems and eventually the whole shelf broke. So hopefully that doesn't happen to you, brother, but I'm just saying I get your example. I've been there and I guess I could say amen. Amen to your example. The majority of the time that we as members make judgments, we're not being bad people. We're just trying to defend the temple, defend the church, defend the chapel. We think it's our job to go ahead and enforce the commandments. We think it's our job to walk up to the person who smells like cigarette smoke and be like, you shouldn't be smoking. Or we think it's our job to bury the accusations of somebody that's been sexually assaulted and make sure that the perpetrator never sees the light of day because we're trying to defend the church. Right. I get you. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, it happens. It happens. We think it's our job to walk up to the person who's not wearing Sunday clothes and say, hey, you shouldn't be wearing Sunday clothes. We think it's our job to walk up to the person who has sinned and tell them you shouldn't be doing that. That's not our job. Not even close to our job. That is Mormon culture, not gospel culture. Gospel culture says that we're supposed to mourn with those who mourn. We're supposed to comfort those who send need to comfort. We're supposed to be there for them, not to judge them, but to love them. Yay. Yes. Not to judge. Yes. Not to judge, but to love. And, and I, I think the, you know, you're kind of setting up a dichotomy here of don't love instead, or I'm sorry, don't judge instead love. And almost like love is accept them. Like, what's the opposite of judging? Uh, toleration. Acceptance, right? So that that type of love. Acceptance. Love. Right? I Applause. Yay. Thank you, Jeremy. Same page. Same team, man. We're all on the same team. Here. And that right there is the crux of the issue. Oh, I love cruxes. Is that until we can learn to actually love people rather than judge them, we're going to continue to have this issue within Mormon culture. Because the judgment stigma within Mormon culture is 
awful. Word. Later on, I asked my boss if he'd ever be interested in going to another temple open house. He said that because of that experience, he wasn't really interested, and he felt like a black sheep the entire time that every, he knew and he was afraid that he was going to make one more misstep and that someone was going to yell at him again. That is disgusting. Yeah, and like in my story, I asked that old turd of a self-righteous guy if he ever wanted to go through another temple session with me, and I promised that I wouldn't put my clothes on the floor, and he said, no, you ruined your chance, and so I kicked him in the nuts. No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't really. That didn't happen. I, I wasn't an angry ex-Mormon yet. We should not have people afraid to visit Christ's church. Don't think that I don't see the irony here, right? Like, when you're using the should, the word should, and you're saying <laughs> that that's gross, that's disgusting, that's a little judgy. It's not really loving, it's a little judgy. So in order to say you've got to not judge, you're kind of judging that it's been judging. So that, yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of, ju- a little bit of judgment. So I don't know. I, I don't know. I judge. I'm judging you right now. I judge me. I ju- but I appreciate what you're saying. I, appre- I appreciate what you're saying, Jeremy. You're on the right path. Because something very important to remember is that I'm a visitor in Christ's church just as much as the person who's not a member is a visitor. Because if my actions aren't becoming of a saint, then I am not of the household of faith. I am not, by virtue of a baptism, guaranteed membership in the church. My actions and kept covenants is what guarantees that. When someone comes in, my discipleship is what dictates. And our discipleship's overarching theme should be love. And that goes on to something else I actually want to talk about. It was really cool because not only did I have Elder Holland give a state conference address on Sunday, on Friday I actually had an opportunity to listen to Elder Suarez of the 12 at Utah Valley University, and he delivered an address. And I want to kind of dovetail this a little bit into that as well. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Real, no, Elder Holland and Elder Suarez. I don't know who that is. I'm sorry. It's, it's after my time. But name drop. Way to go, man. Nice. Nice. Sora has talked about the discipleship and the need of love. And he mentioned that discipleship means apprentice. It's an apprentice, not apprentice. It's not like repentance with an A. It's apprentice. Defied. An apprentice is someone who's to become like his master. And he said that he, Jesus Christ laid the groundwork and said that by this shall men know you are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. The meaning of that, he went on to explain, was that only through love can we ever become like Christ. He shared a quote from Miller Ruthland that said, love is the beginning, the middle, and the end of discipleship. And so the true way to overcome the judgment stigma within Mormon culture is to understand that we need to love others, not judge them. I love this. I love it. Could you define love for me, though? Uh, Because... It's great to say these things, but there are certain areas where I just, I don't see it really being applied. And I think you're starting to see that too. It sounds to me like you're seeing that as well. You're seeing these areas, you're creating a category that you're calling Mormon culture that you can, that's a box that you can put all the bad things in. Oh, these are things that we do that are bad. I'm going to put it in this box. But then you've got like the gospel culture box. These are the good things. We're going to keep the good things in here. So you've got love in the good. But what is love? How do you define love? Is it the policy 
for gay kids to not be baptized, you know, like that whole thing, is that an expression of love? Because then you start twisting what love actually means. You're like, well, we're actually protecting them. Like an excommunication is a court of love. You've said that, Jeremy, but you've got to like really understand what love is first. And the problem, the problem, a big and important problem with the Mormon church and with Mormon and gospel culture is that there's not a consistent definition of love. Love gets used as a smokescreen for things that don't feel very loving to the people that are on the other side of it. But this is the start of asking those questions and like getting those definitions and finding out more about love. So that's cool. That's great. And once again... Applause. Yes, I love what you're saying here about it. I just, you know, there, there needs to be more. But keep going. We have no right to judge. The right to judge was earned by Jesus Christ. And unless you're Jesus Christ, stop judging. I don't care what quote you have. I don't care what, what theory you have. You don't have a right to judge. Yeah, well, I got a lot of quotes here uh, from the Book of Mormon. Deal justly, judge righteously. Alma 41.14. Of course, then Mormon 8.20 says, man shall not judge for judgment is mine. So some inconsistencies there. But then Moroni 7.15 says, it is given unto you to judge. And Moroni 7.16 says, I show unto you the way to judge. And Moroni 7.18 says, the same judgment which ye judge, ye shall also be judged. So I I hear what you're saying, but um, don't think that you don't judge or that you shouldn't judge. Of course, that's what your brain is for, dude. Judge righteous judgment. Judge based on a standard of love, maybe, or something like that. And forgive yourself when you don't. And allow yourself to mock others who are kind of silly. That's what I do. Elder Uchtdorf even told us to stop it. Well, if Elder Uchtdorf said... So if you're judging others, stop it. You just have no right to do so. Now, the final thing to understand about Mormon culture is that Mormon culture actually starts to do what the Pharisees did in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that is they add a law around the law to protect it. Yeah, I feel kind of like Emperor Palpatine here, like, good, good. Yeah, you're on the right track. Mormon culture is very pharisaic. Good observation. Way to go, Jeremy. See, the gospel culture says you're not a failure as a parent unless you give up and stop loving your kids. Mormon culture says you're a failure as a parent if your kids all don't go on missions and all don't get married in the temple and don't have a lot of babies. See, the problem with that is no one, no one, not even God himself, can live Mormon culture fully. Because even God himself had a third of his children fall away. And according to Mormon culture, that makes him a failure. According to the gospel culture, he still loves all his children. He's not a failure. That logic is truly dizzying. And so one of the biggest reasons we have depression issues, we have these issues where people just don't feel like they're good enough, is because they are measuring themselves up to the cultural standard of Mormonism rather than gospel standard, the gospel culture. Yeah, maybe you can look into this one a little bit more carefully later on. But okay, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're doing this. Keep going. If we measure ourselves up to the gospel culture, <laughs> measure. we're going to be asked, are you striving? Are you struggling? Are you desiring? And if those three things are yes, then though you're far from perfect, you're going to make it. That's what Bruce R. McConkie taught, and that's what Elder Perry taught in conference. Whereas Mormon culture says, if you're not perfect now, you've got to fake it till you make it. You've got to pretend. 
and that leads to hollow, empty feelings and people who leave the church and they say, the church didn't work. And we all know somebody who left the church and said they were far happier after they left the church. Well, here's the problem with that. That's not true. Boo, boo. I thought we weren't going to judge Jeremy. Are you sure it's not true? You're sure it's not true? Probably be, probably because some church leader said it, so you know it. Okay, well, guess what? That's wrong. You don't leave the church. You left the culture. You left the church long ago. Don't you mean you left the gospel long ago? Like, are you conflating gospel and church? That's kind of sloppy. Come on, think, think it through. Think it through. When you stop living the gospel and only start living the culture, it becomes hollow and empty. That's the first step to get you out of the church. If Satan can get you to leave the church and go to the culture, then he can show you that the culture isn't good. And then he can get you to leave it completely. Famous last words from Jeremy Goff as he's recognizing the badness of the culture of the Mormon church. <laughs> but if we anchor ourselves to the actual gospel culture, to the actual gospel doctrine, to the principles, to the priesthood, to the things that are real and eternal, then that will serve as an anchor where we won't fall away. We won't have those moments where people are like, well, I decided to give the church a break and now I'm... I decided not to go back because it's, I'm happier without the gospel. No, you're not happier without the gospel. You've already forsaken the gospel long ago. You are happier without the culture stigmas that come with Mormon culture. Okay, so now I'm confused, Jeremy. Are you agreeing that they are happier than they were before, but it's just not for the reasons that they're stating? So, yeah, okay, they're happier, but it's not because they left the gospel. It's because they left the church culture. But they left the gospel long ago. Like, it doesn't make any sense. If they left the gospel, but they're still happier? Like, what, what the hell are you saying here? Um, I understand why you're doing it. I understand the myopia. I understand the horse blinders that are there. Uh, keep, keep pushing at them. You'll, you'll get there maybe someday. But, uh, yeah, boy, it's, it's just, it's so, it's such a weird left curve to be hearing all about how important it, it, it important and big it is to love instead of judge and then phew, right back in i guess i guess the difference is it's easier to uh to love non-members and accept non-members who've never had the gospel and reject it than it is for people who have been where you are and who have rejected it that you can then uh, turn into like a character Sesame Street voice and go, oh, I just want to take a break from the church, as if that's what it is. Um, there are so many, many different reasons why people leave. And I I would say that some are more legitimate than others, probably, but everybody can leave if they want to leave. It's, anyway, that's going to take us down a completely different rabbit hole. Let's get back to yours, Jeremy. Then that will serve as an anchor where we won't fall away. We won't have those moments where people are like, well, I decided to give the church a break, and now I'm, I decided not to go back because it's, I'm happier without the gospel. No, you're not happier without the gospel. You've already forsaken the gospel long ago. You are happier without the culture stigmas that come with Mormon culture. And so that's what I wanted to talk about today. Now, Elder Holland did share something very important, and that is that that man eventually did come back to the church. Oh, yay. That's good. That's so good. So good. That man, even though he lost his marriage and his children and everything he had basically to alcoholism, 
because the people were mean to him when he first tried to go back to church, he eventually did come back. But the cost was so steep. And he regretted it for the rest of his life. And he wished that he had not done so. You just jumped the tracks, Jeremy. I mean, at first, this guy was the victim of a member doing something wrong. But now you're saying that this guy did something wrong. Everybody did something wrong. It's kind of judgy. And then Elder Holland, after sharing that story, he was just sharing it in a normal, straight voice, then just, you know, fire in the eyebrows. Fire in the eyebrows? <laughs> he told us to never, ever, ever do something that we will regret. To never do something now, then 90 years we'll look back and say, that was not what I should have done. Wow, that, that sounds like great advice as a way to keep people from being anxious or depressed, you know, to, to just follow the gospel culture of never doing anything that you will ever regret. Just as, lo- just as long as you live a life avoiding anything that you will ever regret, then you will be happy. That sounds like a formula for mental health and emotional health and a Depression? What depression? How? That would be something I would regret. And then I would have to repent and be forgiven and take advantage of Jesus Christ's atonement. And don't even, don't even go there, people. I mean, we do call ourselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints instead of the Mormon Church, but just don't ever do anything wrong that you would regret. And you won't even have to worry about the guy that was crucified on the cross and this whole thing that we name our church from. That I mean, it just makes perfect sense. Jeremy, don't be a fool. Holland is an idiot. He is a dodo. He really, really is a dodo. Read some studies about mental health and familiarize yourself with people who actually study this stuff and with real people and aren't just doing platitudes from the scriptures and live in this little bubble. This little bubble is not a healthy bubble, Jeremy. I think you're starting to figure that out and you create this box where you can put all of the bad things in Mormon culture, but you're still venerating these things that, no, that's not good advice that Holland just gave. It's dumb. It's wrong. It's harmful. Harmful. Pretty judgy of me, huh? I think it's a righteous judgment. I'm going to stick by it. No regrets. Elder Holland would be so proud. The decisions we make now determine not only now, they determine tomorrow, they determine 90 years from now, they determine our eternity. And it is so healthy to live under that kind of pressure. So healthy indeed. And so he charged us. With eyebrows aflame. To make sure that the decisions we make now, we make them with the perspective of eternity. When we do that, Mormon culture won't even have an appeal to us. The gospel will have an appeal to us. We'll love one another, we'll serve one another, and we'll realize at the end of the day, We're all brothers and sisters trying to do this thing called life. Now, that's an idea I can get behind. We are all brothers and sisters struggling, trying to do this thing called life. And so we can drop the judgment. We can approach things with love and acceptance and helping each other out. And what I'm doing right now, Jeremy, believe it or not, trying to help you out, trying to help you out. And the dozens and dozens of people who listen to what I have to say trying to say we can separate these false beliefs that were drilled into our heads, that have been drilled into yours, that we thought were true, we thought were right, and we started to come to see, wait a minute, this doesn't seem like it's right. Is it me? Is it me? No, it's not. 
It's not you. <laughs> it's okay. Everybody relax. Everybody love. Everybody not judge unrighteous judgment. Judge like I'm judging right now, <laughs> taking on Jeremy Goff and the unfortunate false truths that he holds to with such stalwartness, such valiance. I've been there. I understand it. I'm sorry. Ah, yeah. We are all brothers and sisters struggling through this life. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And if we can help somebody, mourn with those who are mourning, comfort those who are sending to comfort, that's the essence of the gospel. Not judgment, but actually love. Even if they're mourning because they've gone through a faith crisis that people that they love on the inside of the church just don't understand and they vilify. Even then, mourn with those who mourn. If you can. That's the essence of the gospel. Not judgment, but actually love and tolerance. Unless you're President Oaks. And so that was really the message I felt like inspired to share after watching General Conference, not General Conference, watching State Conference today with Elder Holland. Uh, a fun little tidbit he did throw out there. He said that if you do love temple building, then you need to watch General Conference because uh, there's some announcements coming. And he said, quote, the church is on the move. I hope it's Mars. He then also followed it up with that we will also be addressing the name of the church in General Conference because... When the Son of God appears, we are not going to deliver him up the Mormon church. We are going to deliver him the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as a worthy bridegroom. So, that, or sorry, worthy bride to the groom. I hope we go on a cool honeymoon with Jesus. Second coming. So that's some exciting stuff to look forward to. Conferences is two weeks away, so start getting ready, start preparing, and y'all have a great rest of your Sabbath. Wall will have an excellent rest of our Sabbath, Jeremy. So thank you, everyone, who supports Infants on Thrones on Patreon. I am really, really thrilled that I found this guy. <laughs> just, it's just like a pinata that I can swing at. It's just fun for all of us, I think. And all this candy spills out. And it's just yummy. It's just yummy. So... Thank you for supporting the yumminess uh, of Infants on Thrones. And here's to Jeremy Goff and his astute aim that he takes towards anti-Mormons and our myths and lies and rumors and whoremongering and drug addictions and just uh, we're boogeymen. And he's just going to push us back under the bed and into the closets and the bedrooms of good Mormon boys and girls everywhere in the world. So thank you, Jeremy Goff. Just in time for the Halloween season. Talk to you Patreon people again next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to... But wait, there's more. Both the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ are true and divine. However, there is a distinction between them which is significant. Both the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ are true and divine. And there is an essential relationship between them that is significant and very important. Did you ever have to make up your both the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ and the church, and the church of, Jesus of Jesus Christ are true and, and divine. However, there is a distinction between them. An essential relationship. The distinction between them. An essential relationship. It's not often easy and not often kind.
distinction, essential relationship, distinction, essential relationship, distinction, which is significant, significant and very important. Did you ever have to finally decide? Can't touch this. Can't touch this. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core of the Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. Today we will take you back in time to a conversation that was recorded in December 2010. This conversation was between Infants Glenn and Scott, although Scott was going by the name Jesse back then. Glenn and Scott were joined by James Rogers and Rock Waterman to talk about a very interesting event in recent church history. In 1984, Elder Ronald D. Pullman gave a talk in general conference about the differences between the church and the gospel. Some top leaders did not like this talk, and made him make some very interesting changes to it. Not only that, but they made him re-deliver this rewritten talk to an empty conference center so they could film it and try to pass it off as the original. But there were recordings of the original, as well as the rewrite, and you will hear clips from both, as well as a detailed breakdown of the differences between these two talks. It is a fascinating story. We hope you enjoy it. And oh yeah, oops. Many of you will remember this past October, President Boyd K. Packer gave a talk that uh, stirred up a lot of attention. Uh, the, the, the topic itself uh, created a bit of controversy, but uh, a few days after he gave it, it was published in the Ensign, and there were several differences between what was published and what he actually said over the pulpit. Well, this isn't the first time uh, that this has happened in the history of the church, and in recent history uh, especially. Uh, in 1984, there was an incident uh, where there were much more significant changes, um, something that happened with Elder Ronald E. Pullman. Uh, he gave a talk uh, where there were many differences. Uh, he, he spoke uh, on the uh, differences between the church and the gospel. And in, in Pullman's case, not only was the print version in the ensign different than what he gave over the pulpit, but they also asked him to go into the uh, conference center, or, or I guess it was the, uh, uh, the, the tabernacle at that time, wherever it was. They asked him to go into an empty room. They re-videotaped it and then spliced that into the video archive. Uh, so we've got two different video records of this now. Uh, so we're going to spend the next uh, hour tonight talking about the Ronald E. Pullman incident, and we brought in several guests. Jesse, you want to say hello? Sure. Um, I'm Jesse. Um, I live in the Midwest. I'm currently an active member of the church, although uh, certainly not any, any kind of a traditional believer. Um, I had my crisis of faith about a year and a half ago or so, and just been kind of trying to figure things out since then. Um, I'm fascinated by Mormon history and very excited for tonight's topic. And, and you were born April 6th, weren't you? <laughs> of course. <laughs> which, which is fantastic because we're, we're coming up on uh, Christmas uh, this week uh, as That's we're recording right. the podcast. Which, and, and you were born on Jesus' actual birthday. <laughs> yes. Fantastic. Yes. And, and we're also uh, joined tonight by James. Hello, everybody. Well, I um, 
was born and raised in the church, uh, lived uh, most of my life in Arizona and Utah, and uh, currently live in the Phoenix area. Uh, I would, I'm an active member of the church. I guess you could say I'm a non-traditional believer, and I'm excited to be a member. All right, thanks, James. And then we also have joining us uh, Rock Waterman. Rock, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a, I'm a believing Latter-day Saint. I maintain a blog called Pure Mormonism, and it was motivated by essentially the topic of this this uh, podcast right now. The sense that I've noticed over the past couple of decades that the church and the gospel has been conflated into one entity, and, and, and many members are confused as to what they should worship. Should they worship Christ or should we worship the Christ, the, the church? So I see a lot of idolatry in the church. And sort of that's the, kind of the theme of my blog, Pure Mormonism, is to sort of go back and look at some of the pure doctrines. All right, so we've got an interesting group here with us tonight. Um, so let's start off by talking a little bit about who Ronald Pullman is and uh, what, what his background is, uh, and then we'll get a little bit about uh, the context of 1984 uh, before we get into uh, what what the talk was. So, uh, do one of you want to take a, a stab at uh, Ronald Pullman? I have a little bit of, of his background. Uh, he was born in 1928 in Salt Lake City. Um, he served a mission in the Netherlands. Um, in the, 1955, he graduated from the University of Utah Law School, and then he got an MBA from Harvard Business School in 1965. Um, he lived in San Francisco and was a vice president of Consolidated Freightways. Um, he was a bishop in San Francisco and then was called to the first quorum of the 70 in 1978. And uh, he served several uh, twice on the, the general presidency of the Sunday school. And now, he's, is he still in the 70 now? He's, he's an emeritus. He was given emeritus status in 1998. What, what's emeritus status? I, I mean, I haven't been paying attention to this stuff. What that, is emeritus That means status? You've, you've graduated. <laughs> so does he still give talks? No. When was the last? Did you know when the last time was that he spoke? I know, I don't know. No, that. I'm putting you on the spot. I, I, I do remember <laughs> reading that uh, after he gave this, after he gave this uh, speech here in '84, he, he didn't speak again for four and a half years. Yes, I read that that talk, and it was rather pedestrian. It was nothing like uh, it wasn't taking any chances of uh, shaking things up. I don't recall the topic or anything. I just remember that it was not not very interesting. Did, did he? Did, do you know? Did he have a reputation at all before he gave this talk for being? He, uh, he did. He did have a little bit of a reputation before this talk as being one of the more liberal members um, of the Quorum of the Seventy. I think of him as the Marlon K. Jensen of the 1980s. Really? Okay. I think Pullman said something at the end of his talk that he he gathered mo- most of the the facts that he gathered in his life. You know, most of the things that he knew in his life he gathered through facts, and that he was a rational person, but. Uh, the, the things of the spirit he knew through the spirit and that he could testify through, through the spirit. You, you remember he said this at the end of his talk. Do, yeah, do you want the quote? Yeah, sure. My brothers and sisters, by inclination, training, and experience, most of my life I have sought understanding by the accumulation of facts and the application of reason. I continue to do so. However, that which I know most surely and which has most significantly and positively affected my life, I do not know by facts and reason alone, but rather by the comforting, confirming witness of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that statement just kind of struck me. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, it just made me wonder what his background was. Yes, he, he's a, he, well, he had his JD and his MBA, so he, he was a well-educated man. Does anybody know why he hasn't 
spoken about this? I know he, he had to have been asked about it, but I can't find anything. I have it on first-hand account from someone who actually went and knocked on his door. Um, he still lives in Salt Lake. He's still alive. And I, I have spoken with someone who actually went to his door and went inside his house and talked to him about it. And he has been inundated with people asking him about it, and he's kind of caught in the middle. Um, I'm paraphrasing here, but he, he's in the position where he, he's a believer. He's, you know, at one point was a general authority, and he's in the unenviable position of having to defend the church and at the same time, you know, kind of maintain some sense of, uh, um, of his integrity or his, uh, what's, what's the word I'm searching for? Integrity was good. Okay, thanks. So I've, I've heard that he's been um, contacted from time to time, and the person that I spoke to um, had a couple of other interesting things to say, but um, other than that, I don't, I don't have any information. When, when did this person go visit him? Um, in, within the last year. I think the Elder Pullman incident in general has gotten more uh, uh, notoriety on the internet just in the last few months with uh, Elder Packer's talk being changed. People have looked this up and, and realized this, ha- this isn't the first time it's happened. And so I wouldn't be surprised that that might have spurred them to, to go talk to him. Okay. Yeah, I, I've been kind of surprised, even within the, the disaffected Mormon underground, how few people um, know about this. You know, people know about polyandry and polygamy and, you know, the Kinderhook plates and on and on and on and on. And this is one of those things that it just seems to have been more or less lost down, down the proverbial memory hole, but um, we can get into that. All right. So I'll, I'll bet at this point people are, are probably listening and thinking, all right, stop talking about Pullman and just tell us what it is that he said. <laughs> so let, let's, let's summarize the message real quick. Well, I'd happily do that. All right. He, uh, he gave a, a wonderful talk. It was very, very clarifying about the differences and the important distinctions between the church and the gospel. And he pointed out that it's essential that we understand these differences because if we don't, we'll, uh, it'll result in confusion. We, can, we may, uh, well, we'll confuse the church and the gospel and conflate the two as one. So he, he made the point that it's an important distinction to make. The difference between the church and the gospel. I like he said, um, one quote from the talk that I think sums it up, he says, as individual and collectively we increase our knowledge, acceptance, and application of gospel principles, we become less dependent on church programs, our lives become gospel-centered. There, um, there you go. There you go. Right. Of course, that's, that's how I well, always thought, that, that eventually we, we would uh, be clued in enough that we wouldn't really need the church to hold our hands. But apparently somebody from on high felt that was going a little too far that we needed needed them but so he, been brushing things so he was saying that the gospel was unchangeable and yes. that the the gospel was pure and that the gospel uh had the the keys of salvation um uh, and that the church was a delivery system but that the church was changeable Right. Yes. Yes. He said programs change uh, depending on the situation, and uh, policies change, but the gospel is unchanging. And uh, and uh, the the thing about this talk at the time, it was like a breath of fresh air. Uh, a lot of people said, "Finally, we're you know, I understand," because we'd been moving. The church had been moving into an area where people were looking to the church as the magisterium, as the divine authority in all things and looking and confusing church leaders with uh 
Well, I, I, in my view, they were there was some idolatry growing. So what what was going on in 1984 that that people would be looking at the church as a magisterium? Because I I would think, you know, if we, if we're looking back, we would say, hey, 1978 is when the blacks got the priesthood. That's a pretty good thing. The church was making progress. So now we're six years removed from that. What's the problem? What, why 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 is this a, a bad thing in 1984? I think the church in general was was kind of going through a period of retrenchment. The whole New Mormon history had had been happening. Um, lots of new facts about church history that hadn't been known have been coming out. Uh, Michael Quinn was starting to get be, there started to be controversy about some of the things he'd been saying. Uh, Leonard Arrington was released as a church historian in 1982. Um, Bruce Armacon, I believe, it was 1982. I uh, gave a message to church educators saying that not everything that is true is helpful and kind of encouraged them not to not to depart from anything that wasn't faith affirming. Um, so I think the church was just kind of feeling un- like it was under attack. And it actually, 1984 was when the uh, Salamander letter was produced by uh, Mark Hoffman, which called into doubt some of the origins of the church. So I think it was under this whole uh, environment of the church was kind of feeling under attack itself that, that this talk was given. Okay. I, I, I have one point, one point to make on that. Yeah. Um, well, first, I think it's, we, we have to mention that this happened in 1984. Um, <laughs> so maybe George Orwell was a prophet. Um, <laughs> Because this this would certainly fulfill his prophecy of um, going down the memory hole, um, just what what happened to this talk. But um, to me, this is kind of the modern version of, or or it's one of the stepping stones in a long string of the church changing its history and of members fundamentally not having a grasp on. What church? Uh, what the church is actually doing behind the curtain? So, there's changes to the Book of Mormon that members have no clue about. Even today, um, there's changes to the Doctrine and Covenants that members have no clue about. Um, and and because our church is so, is so historically based, to me those are personal, and those actually matter. So, when I learned about this incident, it was it was really sad to kind of look at the history and see the direction the church was going. And then I think this was, this was the high watermark where it, 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 it was a turning point um, to which everything since then has just been more, more entrenched, like James said. It's just kept going in that direction. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think by 1986, correlation was in full flower, and it had been right. a gradual, gradual change until the church, in my opinion, had had gradually changed from a libertarian organization to one that required obedience, uh, and, and where the leadership felt that they were responsible for the testimonies of the members and that they were somehow in charge of the members. And so we, we, we got to this point where uh, obedience, uh, you know, it was just a different church than the one I grew up with under President McKay. I was born when President McKay uh, took office and I graduated high school the year he died. So that was how I grew up in the church. Uh, we were constantly taught that the free agency was the, one of the most important things, and I and I wasn't by 1986. We weren't seeing that at all. I, you know, I I'd, I'd like to explore this idea of free agency a, a little bit more. And, and Jesse, you mentioned George Orwell and the memory yeah. hole. Sure. And I think that's I think that's really an interesting point. Um, and, and I think Rock, you wrote about that on your blog as well. 
Yeah. Could, could you guys explain what the memory hole is? Because I, I, I think as as we talk about what happened with the refilming of this video, that that will become a, a, a key point. Do you want to take that, Jesse? Um, sure. Uh, so so George Orwell wrote a book called 1984. It's um, part of a genre called dystopian fiction. And in dystopian fiction, there are always two worlds. There's the world that is is the happy world that everyone pretends uh, to believe and to live in. And then there's also a sinister world, which is behind the scenes, which underlies most of the story. So in, in 1984, the book, people would uh, receive reports or there would be pieces of statistics or, or news, uh, news articles or, or anything um, that was published. If it later became unfavorable, it would be taken by a clerk it would be redacted, it would be edited, it would be changed. And then that little strip of paper that was the previous article would go into a hole called the memory hole and it would suck it up and make it disappear. So if anybody ever went back and looked at that news article or if they ever you know, checked that report, the only thing they would see was what was later edited. Um, so that's kind of the, the backdrop for that. So, so the memory hole is where the the that unfavorable piece of data uh, disappears to. That's right. And then once it's gone down the memory hole, nobody has any recourse of being able to say, oh, no, wait, but look, it was really this. Um, yeah. And that's what's, happened, that's what's happened with this talk is the church, you know, he gave the talk on, in general conference. It was Sunday morning of October 1984. And by the time it was published... The talk had been completely changed, and by the time the videos were released, the talk had been re-recorded, a cough track was added into it, and nobody could find the original video. Um, it, was, it was never released by the church. But as Rock points out on his blog, there were people who had VCRs in that day. So uh, I think we'll be linking to the, to the YouTube videos of, of the original um, video, which are, are available on YouTube, um, and it's very interesting. And you know, I wonder if the uh, the church authorities who decided to retape that even were aware of the existence of video recorders at the time. If they were, they, uh, as I point out, very few people had them at the time. They they cost anywhere from six hundred to thirteen hundred dollars, and so I doubt that there there were very few members of the church who owned VCRs. But those few who did were apparently using them to record conference. It was a, a fairly new invention, but uh, I. I don't think the the church would attempt something like that today, uh, knowing that there's there's so many uh, devices to record something on, like that on, but because they they completely turned the talk inside out. As you know, it's not like they just uh, deleted a few lines like they did with Elder Packer. Yeah. So 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 what what you think is that they tried to they they tried to reinvent the talk re-record it, put, yes. put this video into the church archive. They tried to flush the old one down the memory hole, but because some members had actually recorded it on this newfangled device called a, a, a VHS machine that some members actually had in 1984, they, they weren't successful. They weren't able to flush this down the memory hole because there were some copies of it that were still out there in the public memory. The story was broke. The, the Salt Lake Tribune published a story in 1984 about this change, and that, that's when people 
realize that this change had been made. I think if, if that news story hadn't been published, people probably wouldn't have gone back and compared their old tapes to the, to the new version oh. of the talk, and no one would have realized the change had happened. Yeah. Um, so I think it was, they, they were close to getting away with, uh, with, with, with changing the talk without, without it being noticed. Okay, so we've, we've talked a little bit about the, the theme of the talk. It was comparing the, the, the gospel to the church and, and basically saying that the, the gospel is unchanging, but the church is changing, that people have free agency, they, they should be able to uh, exercise their free agency and become depend, or, uh, independent of the church at some point um, to exercise their free agency in making right choices for the right reasons, um, choosing the gospel independent of the church, right? That was the original message. And then, yes. he, and then the, the second half of the talk, really, he gave uh, uh, examples Glenn, can from I just the... Add, yeah, go ahead. Can I, can I add one thing to that yeah. that I thought was maybe worth emphasizing yeah. a little bit more? Yeah. Was the um, point about the church eventually will, will kind of um, wither away or it'll become obsolete can, can, there was, can you there was read that quote? Line. Yeah, what, what, what line is that? Um, just a second, let me find it here. There, there's, there's one that says institutional discipline is replaced by self-discipline. There you go. Is that, yeah. is that what you're thinking of, Jesse? Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. And to me, I, I mean, this, this speaks to my, and, and my background. And supervision Sorry. is replaced by righteous initiative. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Right. And, and and there's a number of, of similar ones to that, like where it says the messengers, referring to previous dispensations, messengers was replaced by prophets. Yeah. You know, so that takes it from something maybe outside of, of correlation to something inside. But to me, he almost speaks about the church like Marx, Karl Marx, speaking about um, the institution of government to where eventually we'll reach this this understanding or, or this, this nirvana where none of us need it anymore. And it will just become, it, it will just wither away because, you know, we'll be living in the city of Enoch or we'll be living in Zion or something. And, and that's kind of the point of all of this is so that we can eventually break free from the church. And so, so that was the only, only thing I wanted to add. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and so we're, we're getting to the point where we can kind of look side by side, you know, at, at the comparisons of, of the old or of the original version versus the uh, the... The, the new one that came out, but so the 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 original version was free agency. We can we can we don't need the church, and then the new one had a very different message. And and what was the message? I mean, I think we've we've kind of led the audience to understand what the new message is going to be. But it, it's essentially you need the church. You will never yeah, well, escape from the church, right? What what I see is go ahead. I was just going to say, I, the, 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 one of the first sentences of the talk, he says there is um, a distinction between the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ, and the new version says there is an essential relationship between them. Both the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ are true and divine. However, there is a distinction between them which is significant, and it is very important that this distinction be understood. Both the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ are true and divine. And there is an essential relationship between them that is significant and very important. I think that sums it up. Instead, rather than making the distinction between the two as he did in the original talk, 
the, the changed version of the talk says that you can't have one without the other, that the church essentially is the gospel, and you can't have the gospel without the church, and the two are inseparable. Yeah, what, what I see was that Pullman was, was, was laying out the distinctions between the gospel and the church so that we don't... Uh, so that we don't mis misunderstand either one, but somebody was going, no, 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 no. The gospel is the church. There's, they're the same thing. Don't you know? We want the we want the members to <laughs> to see them as one and the same. And I've, I've got that. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I've got that quote. I was I was looking for earlier. Um, it's on it's on page two, right in the middle of the comparison thing that we're looking at. But it, he said in the original talk. As individually and collectively we increase our knowledge, acceptance, and application of gospel principles, we become less dependent on church programs. In the revised version, that was the same until the last part of the sentence. He said, we become more, or we, sorry, we can more effectively utilize the church to make our lives more gospel-centered. So instead of becoming less focused on the church, <laughs> the goal is that we can more effectively utilize the church yeah. Yeah. So and instead of the church his... becoming less, the church becomes more. Right. Which, which I, I think, I when I see members, I mean, to me, that's exactly what's happened in the last twenty six years um, with with church, church programs. Is is it hasn't become any more gospel focused. It's become much more church focused. Institution. And I, I think we need to right. fairly characterize Elder Pullman. I don't think Elder Pullman's saying that the church isn't valuable. I think he's saying the church oh. is very valuable, but right. um, there's something. But you know, it, it's it's only a, a a tool to use to come close to the gospel. It, it's um, a it's a means to an end. Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. It's essential. It, it's essential to have the delivery system to get the product to you. But it. But let's let's keep it in perspective. It is not the product. It is not. It is not the. It's not, it's not the meat. It's yeah, the, the, those, those words, delivery system, were changed to a, uh, the church is divinely commissioned. The gospel is the substance of the divine plan for personal, individual salvation and exaltation. The church is the delivery system that provides the means and resources to implement this plan in each individual's life. The gospel is the divine plan for personal, individual salvation and exaltation. The church is divinely commissioned to provide the means and resources that implement this plan in each individual's life. Yeah, so, yeah. They, so, even took, so. they even took out the obvious. It's, it's obvious that, that the church's role is to get the gospel to us, to administer the ordinances, but it... But, like you say that quote, they just said that's. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> now, what's the what's the quote from Joseph Smith where he, he says that uh, the the I, I teach the church correct principles that they may govern themselves, something like that. Yeah. Somebody somebody asked him, "How do you govern such a large number of people?" I can't recall who it was. It was a visitor to Nauvoo, and he said, "I." I just teach them correct principles and let them govern themselves. It was like he was asked a stupid question. I don't govern these people. I, I just teach them correct principles and let them govern themselves. Yeah. And, 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 and yeah, go ahead. Oh, there was there was one quote. I actually wrote that in in my notes um, by the side of this one. The sentence was changed. This is on page six. Uh, the sentence was changed from institutional. Or, or, excuse me. Supervision is replaced by righteous initiative and a sense of divine accountability 
that that quote was changed to we will exercise self-discipline and righteous initiative guided by church leaders and a sense of divine accountability so instead of something being internal and having righteous initiative you know being agents unto ourselves we start to exercise um you know discipline which means we're being led by the church leaders exactly you need as the leaders. in the people not only not only the institution but it specifically inserts and and changes individual choice to following church leaders exactly that we can't quote, do it without the church is what they're saying right that quote from joseph sorry go ahead i was just going to say we can't make our own decisions without the guidance of the brethren and it, it, it was almost as if there was a a flurried panic that that the members might wake up and find out that we don't need them. That's that quote from Joseph Smith uh, was from uh, John Taylor recorded this in 1851 in the Millennial Star. And what he says is a gentleman, a member of the legislature, asked Joseph Smith how it was that he was enabled to govern so many people and to preserve such perfect order, remarking at the same time that it was impossible for them to do it anywhere else. Mr. Smith remarked that it was very easy to do that. How responded the gentleman? To us, it is very easy. To us, to us, it is very difficult. Mr. Smith replied, "I teach them correct principles, and they govern themselves." Thank you, James. I've been looking for the background on that. <clears throat> I appreciate that. Well, I mean, and, and there's also a scripture in DNC, and again, I don't know the the right, you know, the the the, the scripture and the chapter and verse, but it's not meet that you should be commanded in all things for the same as a slothful, not a wise servant, you know, but be doing good continually you, you know that one i mean sure. it, it seems consistent with that sort of thing but but here you've got church leaders that are saying no you do need to be commanded in all things and you need us to command you um you know uh, uh, obedience i and i don't i don't know rock that i would say that 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 they were afraid that people were going to wake up and say we don't we don't need the church but to say that the ultimate end goal of the church is to say that we don't need the church. It, it seems like that's where they feel that the the threat is. D- d- does that make sense? Well, I I tend to think that I, I now as uh, Paul Toscano said, he says individually these men are fine people, but when they get together, they act like a corporation. I think that there's a tendency to protect the church to protect the image protect i think think they feel they're needed and that was a threat that they might not be needed but yeah, it's just my opinion well and then so that's, that's this, understandable organizational behavior that um you know yeah. the leaders of an organization are going to seek to preserve and you know maintain the integrity of the organization so i, I think i can at least understand uh, where they're coming from in doing that sure sure i'm not saying they're evil i'm just saying they were they were acting like you'd expect Right. One of the change that I thought was ironic in the talk is um, the original version. He says that um, sometimes traditions and and culture and social practices of the church become conflated with the actual gospel and that people um, misunderstand the cultural aspects of the church to be um, uh, eternal principles of the gospel. And when they they change that quote to instead say the all it says there's three paragraphs where it says that and then the, the new version just says the eternal principles of the gospel implemented through the divinely inspired church apply to a wide variety of individuals in diverse cultures. Sometimes traditions, customs, social practices, and even personal preferences of individual church members may, through repeated or common usage, be misconstrued as church procedures or policies. Occasionally, such traditions, customs, and practices 
may be even regarded by some as eternal gospel principles. Under such circumstances, those who do not conform to these cultural standards may mistakenly be regarded as unorthodox or even unworthy. In fact, the eternal principles of the gospel and the divinely inspired church do accommodate a broad spectrum of individual uniqueness and cultural diversity. The conformity we require should be according to God's standards. The eternal principles of the gospel implemented through the divinely inspired church apply to a wide variety of individuals in diverse cultures. Therefore, as we live the gospel and participate in the church, the conformity we require of ourselves and others should be according to God's standards. So rather than uh, call attention to what I think is, a, is, a, is an important uh, uh, a topic for a worldwide church to understand, is instead it just says the church applies everywhere. Right. And, and that's one, th- one thing. He, he goes out of his way, even above that quote where you're talking about James, he really went out of his way to, to first say the gospel is divinely inspired and it's perfect and the gospel applies to everyone regardless of time, place, or circumstance. And then he says, but there's some things that are cultural. And he lays that out. It's actually a pretty nuanced, um, educated approach. And he, he takes a few minutes to go through that. Um, but but like, you're right. Like you said, it, it, they, they boiled it down to one sentence, which is just, um, it applies to a wide variety of individuals in diverse cultures, which is, is more of where I see um, you know, the, the church doesn't, it, it's like the, the previous podcast on LDS building architecture. The church doesn't try to fit in other places. It doesn't try to work with other people's cultures. It just goes in, you know, at, like a bulldozer sometimes. And this is, this is just the way things are. Um, this is one, one portion of the talk that I don't think would be nearly as controversial now um, I, I think probably in 1984 the brethren were were more, um, or sorry, were rather were less culturally sensitive to other countries. I, I think that would go over better now. I wonder though, because if if you look at the the last sentence in in those three paragraphs that were redacted, mm-hmm. it says, in fact, the eternal principles of the gospel and the divinely inspired church do accommodate a broad spectrum of individual uniqueness and cultural diversity. And the word that really jumps out at me there is accommodate. Right. Church accommodates a broad spectrum of individual uniqueness and cultural diversity. And you could you could fit a lot of stuff today just by, just by assumption and association into that broad spectrum of uniqueness, individual uniqueness and cultural diversity, especially if you're saying accommodating. And when they change that to – they change accommodating to apply. They, they say that, <laughs> that, that the eternal principles of the gospel implemented through the divinely inspired church apply to a wide variety of individuals in diverse cultures. Oh, my. That's turning it inside out. It completely right? turns it inside out. You know, the, the church applies to you. It like doesn't accommodate limit. you. It doesn't accommodate you. It applies well, to it's, you. It's interesting Rock mentioned that correlation was, was getting into full swing, and I guess the whole point of correlation was to make a, a, a homogenized um, church 
uh, program that was a, that could be used in any culture where they could boil it down to the most essential aspects. And so I guess uh, Elder Pullman's uh, talk about how certain aspects of the church might not necessarily uh, apply con- uh, contradicts kind of the church program of, of making everything uh, interchangeable across cultures. Well, yeah, well, I mean, it, it's like, you know, you hear people talk about the, the the church being a big tent that has broad stakes that can stretch out and, you know, can accommodate, you know, a lot of people. But this is saying no. It, it just means that everybody has to follow the rules. <laughs> and so then you end up with uh, congregations in Africa singing 19th century British uh, Protestant hymns. In their- <laughs> right. Right or or who was it? Somebody somebody recently said something about that that the the saints in uh, in England were were happy when uh, they didn't have to celebrate the Fourth of July in their primary <laughs> songs anymore. <laughs> well, you know, I, I lived in, I, I lived in England for a year, and uh, I had a friend who was a recent convert to the church, and I pointed out to him that the whole bunch of American patriotic uh, anthems at the end of the hymn book. And uh, that kind of was an afterthought. They throw in "God Save the King" as well. And he thought that was kind of humorous. And he's, you know, <laughs> jokingly he acted offended that they have all these American uh, patriotic hymns. So there's still a little bit of that to there. Yeah. Glenn, you mentioned stakes, so I wanted to I wanted to throw this in um, toward towards the beginning of the talk. Um, there was a line where the original words read, "The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints is a divine institution." administered by the priesthood of God. Yeah. Um, It was changed to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the kingdom of God on earth (sighs) administered by the priesthood of God, which to me was a tragic moment in reading this because that is the death of Zion. I mean, I love the old church stories about the members seeking for Zion and wanting to build a place and wanting to, you know, construct this utopian society. But here, it's the church saying, no, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you know, the, the legal entity, which, as Damon Smith tells us, it, it isn't really a legal entity, but um, the, the organization here in Utah is the kingdom of God on earth. It's like we've already arrived. So, yeah, of course, that's a false doctrine. The early saints all understood that the church was preparatory to the kingdom of God. But it wasn't did, the kingdom of God. Didn't Joseph Smith had himself coronated toward the end of his life, though, as a king of the kingdom of earth, kingdom of God on earth? Or he he was the um, he was anointed as the king of Israel to reign forever. Yeah, I'm not so sure that that equates with the kingdom of God. Yeah, to, to me that just—I just—I just see that, and I read Zion. I, I mean, that is, I, I read Zion, the stakes of Zion. Like we're we're there, and the whole idea of Zion is completely out the window. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you, Jesse. Yeah, yeah. There, I mean, there, there's a lot of really kind of sad changes in here when when you go through it, and and we'll make this. This side-by-side comparison is available several places on the internet. If if you go to Rock's blog, he's got a link to it. We'll we'll, we'll make a link available on the Mormon Expression website. Um, th- there's another one here on the on the second page where it says uh, the orthodoxy upon which we insist must be founded in the fundamental principles and eternal law, including free agency and the divine uniqueness of the individual. And that last part. 
including free agency and the divine uniqueness of the individual, is changed to and direction given by those authorized in the church. The orthodoxy upon which we insist must be founded in fundamental principles and eternal law, including free agency and the divine uniqueness of the individual. It is important, therefore, to know the difference between eternal gospel principles, which are unchanging, universally applicable, and cultural norms, which may vary with time and circumstance. The orthodoxy upon which we insist must be founded in fundamental principles, eternal law, and direction given by those authorized in the church. So, so free agency is removed, the divine uniqueness in the individual is removed, and it's replaced with direction given by those authorized in the church. And then the next paragraph below that is removed and replaced with nothing. It's, it's, it's important, therefore, to know the difference between eternal gospel principles which are unchanging universally applicable, and cultural norms which may vary with time and circumstances. That's removed. That just so seems, it's, so it's no longer important to know the difference between those things. <laughs> yeah. I guess that goes back to them, uh, them, them saying the leadership uh, takes control of, of, of uh, making sure we're following the gospel, and they probably don't want individual members trying to make those uh, distinctions for themselves, determining what they think is cultural and what they, what they don't think, and right. they instead want to make those decisions for us. I, I, I see this as a problem also, because, and Pullman even uses the word disaffection um, right, right in, I think it's like the third or fourth paragraph of the talk. Um, he says that if you have this misunderstanding, in extreme instances, it can lead to disaffection. So to me, this whole talk is geared towards him inoculating the members or helping the members understand what the church is and what it isn't. Yeah. And if, if they had left his talk in place, it would actually get them out of... A lot of sticky issues because if you're going to say that the church is the kingdom of God and that that institution itself is always the same and it's there's so many problems I mean with scripture and with history how do you explain things with the Old Testament you know Abraham owned slaves Um, so, so did Brigham Young but I mean you could you could explain so many so many tricky church history problems by just saying what he says right here yeah well cultures change but you know the principles of the gospel repentance baptism whatever those stay the same throughout time it's it's not that controversial um which is what blows me away about the whole thing that this really is not that nothing he's saying is that crazy no nothing he's saying is false nothing is he's saying is not doctrinal in fact I, I read I reread it recently, and I thought, you know, this is a church I I would like to belong to. But then when you see the changes, you start thinking, man, this is kind of an authoritarian organization. Yeah, Here, here's another change. He says, the source of this perspective is found in the scriptures and may appear to be presented in a rather unorganized and untidy format. But that's changed, because unorganized and untidy is, well unorganized and untidy <laughs> and we can't have that he's referencing the scriptures here right the, and, and so it's changed to a necessary perspective is gained by studying and pondering the scriptures i think you nailed it there glenn when you said they can't have that you can't you can't, can't have unorganized and untidy 
It doesn't look good. No. It's bad for the image. No. You can't you can't acknowledge that that maybe you know the Book of Mormon doesn't contain the entire fullness of the gospel in a perfect organized format. And he even goes on to say, look, he, he I mean he, he's he's apologetic. He's he's making apologetic points for the church here. Right after that, he says, um, you know, the, God could have just given us a big manual that well, that that's was the organized next paragraph, subject. Yeah. right? Um, but instead, he's given us this messy thing that's about these stories about people's lives, and he ties that into we're supposed to learn by principles, and we don't always have perfect rules for things. No, well, um, I'll take that. For, I'll take that further, Jesse. We can't have the members thinking that the leaders don't know, don't have all the answers. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, we can't have the members thinking that the Lord hasn't given us a manual. Oh, there we are. <laughs> Because he, because there is there, there's a church handbook of instructions that our bishop has. We can't have the members thinking that the Lord hasn't give that given that to them. So yeah, so said. we have to take out this this sentence that says the Lord could have presented the gospel to us in a manual, systematically organized <laughs> by subject, perhaps using examples and illustrations. So that is removed. Oh yeah, yeah. Cause we because we can't we can't have them think that the Lord didn't inspire McConkie's Mormon doctrine. Mm. And, and a couple of paragraphs down from that, there was a sentence in the original which read, "Through Scripture and study, or excuse me, through Scripture study, we may learn eternal principles and how to distinguish them from and relate them to institutional resources." Right. So here he's saying that the key. To understanding this difference is actually going back and looking at scriptures and based on the scriptures we can understand what is the church and what is not the church yeah that by the time we filter our experience through the through the scriptures we'll know what lies at the core of our belief and that sentence was completely removed yeah and nothing nothing was put in its place yeah so so rather think- than having having some objective litmus test that we can go to we like the book 1984 we're just left with whatever the current correlated version of what they tell us well look at look at what many members today think is meant by holding to the rod the the book of mormon is very clear that holding to the rod means holding to the word of god the scriptures and yet most people will tell you that's holding on to the words of the brethren uh, looking to them uh, uh, putting trust in in them so that's what holding to the rod is to them is holding to the to the church organization, the infallible institutional church. Well, implicit in that whole sentence that was removed was the idea that there is a difference between the scriptures and the other resources provided by the church. And right. we, I guess we can see it emphasized in the most recent conference where they, they read those 14 points two different times about how the prophets, the living prophets' words trump the words in the scriptures, that uh, you can't have a, a, the scriptures as some... Uh, something that you can look to for authority above the institutional resources of the church if the institutional resources of the church as approved by the prophet should trump the scriptures according to um, you know a certain thread of belief within uh, general authorities yes and that's what irks me because it would only count if they were receiving direct revelation it doesn't opinions don't trump the scriptures so when when Pullman was uh, sustained as a 70 was he sustained as a prophet seer and revelator no, I don't. I don't think he would have been. No, the are the seventies sustained as prophet seers and revelators. No, uh, 
probably in the minds of the general membership, but I don't believe that they're sustained that way. I think it's the uh, apostles and the first presidency. Am I right? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I could. Go, I'll, I'll go back and check the wording on that. But I, I'm, I'm, from when he was sustained. But I, I think it's just the uh, the fifteen, the quorum of the twelve, and the first presidency who were sustained as uh, prophet seers and letters, prophet seers and revelators. Although when there was a church uh, patriarch. Uh, that that person used to be ordained as a prophet, seer, and revelator. Okay. There was a sixteenth yeah. member of that group. Well, if if he's not a prophet, seer, and revelator, then I think he he's probably susceptible to being edited by prophet, seers, and revelators. Then isn't he? <laughs> well, if, I guess that if, begs the begs the question. Then what do the prophet, seers, and revelators? What what le- what lesson can we glean from these changes? Well, that he was wrong. We, we might we might like what he has to say, but but he he was wrong. And, and yet, everything he said aligns with Scripture, and everything that they changed it simply seems to be a new policy opinion. Uh, maybe I don't know. But but if if you're if you're following the uh, you know President Benson's. Uh, 14 fundamentals of following the prophet then any anything that uh, was in the past is just in the past we just have to discount that and whatever the prophet says today we just have to follow that well well Glenn I can get around your problem very easily okay um, these words were never spoken by a prophet even after they were changed okay nor so yeah, so the, <laughs> the changes are indicative of, of a hierarchy but um, I never heard a, a prophet actually say these words. So. Well, who, did, who, who, is, who was it that uh, instructed him to, uh, to make these changes? Do we know? Um, we don't know exactly. What, what, I, I, guess, it, I guess we were, we were told that he made these changes on his own. Is, is that we were, what we were told. Was, was that the we story? Were told that, that there's a Sunstone article... Um, that talked about this, and it was written by Pe- Peggy Fletcher Stack. Mm-hmm. I think she may have just been Peggy Fletcher at the time, but um, the quote from it was, those apostles who regularly dealt with apostate groups pointed out to Elder Pullman that his talk might be misunderstood. Um, that was how it was phrased, and then and then later on it mentions that he decided to change it after that was pointed out to him. I'm wondering which apostles quote, regularly deal with apostate groups because from everything I've been able to see, they, they don't. There's there's no one who deals with apostate groups. Maybe huh. this was the Danites. I don't know. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what's, a, what's very interesting about this, and I think I made this point earlier, was the original talk would be the type of thing that would incline a person who had doubts and questions to stay within the church, but the talk is redacted is so authoritarian it's my way or the highway that I, I think if the intent was to keep people from leaving the church I think it had the opposite effect because people are leaving the church by the tens of thousands of year a year because of this type of an attitude among the among the authorities yeah well he he addressed the talk at the beginning Did, didn't he address it to people who are are Believers, believing members in the church, or people who are getting ready to join, like investigators. He said to those of you who who believe in the church and those of you who are learning about it and, um, and, and contemplating joining. 
Right. Like, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, he wasn't... He, he, I, I don't know that he was really thinking about people who were considering leaving. Right. Which, or which doubters. Is something that, um, that portion of what he said, um, that he, he actually had a first paragraph, which that entire paragraph was removed from um, the edited version. Oh, was it? Of, of who it was addressed to. Uh. So, so the new talk, um, which is currently still available on LDS.org, starts out with that sentence, both the gospel and the church, both the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ are true and divine. Blah 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 blah. He skips. They so they they skip right over that. Um, well, as so. you implied, Jesse, that that was a really lame reason they gave, and you, you notice that he didn't say himself that he wanted to clarify. A spokesman said that he he wanted. It was his idea, and it right. wasn't. It's clear. It's clear. It's not his idea to turn his words inside out. Yeah. I wonder if um, this whole incident led to any changes in church procedures for uh, how talks, how, how people are chosen to speak in general conference and how talks are approved. Um, I, I, I have two, two experiences with, with, with hearing about how this happens. I had a friend in the late 1990s whose father was, was, a, was in a position where he would speak in conference. And he said that the, none, of the, none of the priesthood holders who spoke in conference had to submit their talks for pre-approval, but all of the women did. Um, but I, I, I just recently, um, a, a high leader of the church came to speak, and uh, I, he, he said that their talks are submitted for approval, and they're, they're, not, um, they're not told to change things, but, um, uh, for example, if two different, two different church leaders are going to speak on the same topic, they might tell them that and suggest that one of them change, you know, make, make minor suggestions such as that. But I can't help but wonder if maybe those sorts of things are, are more common now to make sure that something like Elder Pullman's talk doesn't even make it into conference in the first place. Well, and I also wonder if they would even need to do that, because this would have such a chilling effect on other members of the 70. Like, hey, did you hear about what happened to Pullman? Man, make sure you don't, um, you know, put anything controversial in your conference talk, or they're going to make you go record it again, and you're going to be pretty much humiliated. Um, That's what that's what I think. That that there would be so much pressure. Um, and fear within their organization that they just would never say something like this again. Well, do you think he was humiliated? I think it's humiliating. I, I think he wrote this talk. He's a very educated man. He's clearly thought about it deeply. Um, I think he went out of his way to tie in principles. He's very affectionate towards the church. He, he ties in the gospel perfectly. Um, and they make him sneak back into the into the tabernacle and record this and not say anything to anyone. Um, you know, the church doesn't mention it. They don't come out and say, you know, put, put an addendum on his talk and say, we liked everything that Elder Pullman said. We wanted to clarify that the church is whatever, whatever. You know, they could they could add something onto it. I, to me, it's humiliating. Um, well, that's my general, biggest thing. Is he a general authority or... Or, or is the is the correlation the general authority? I mean, that word has to mean something. Um, so I, I think it's humiliating. Yeah. Well, um, what you said, Jesse, uh, reminds me of something that that that's of concern to me, and that's uh, the whole way that they did this. Um, we don't know because they never said what, whose idea it was to change it, and we have no idea exactly what the process was behind the scenes. 
Um, I thought the whole the whole point of having a prophecy and revelator was that they are there to correct false doctrine and to teach us correctly. And we don't know whether Elder Coleman's original talk is considered to be false doctrine or not because we don't know exactly who told him to make the changes. And just the whole um, the secrecy behind it makes it difficult for us to discern what it is we're supposed to believe. And I think that goes to just a, a common theme in the church of uh, if if a, a teaching falls out of favor, no one no one necessarily tells us that it's not. Uh, enforce anymore. They just kind of don't emphasize it. And uh, actually, in 1981, uh, Elder Hartman Rector gave a talk in General Conference where he, he was pretty harsh uh, talking about birth control and talking against birth control. And the same thing happened in his talk. They just took out the parts where he talked about birth control. And as you know, if you notice, people don't talk in the church about birth control anymore, but in the 70s, general authorities talked about it all the time, saying it was bad. So now no one really knows, are those statements still valid or not? And it would be useful in my mind for someone to just say, you know, this is right, this is wrong, so that we can have a clear understanding of what the church's teachings are on these issues. You're right. Good, good point, James, because rather than just sneaking around and changing it, there should be a definitive statement. And there isn't. So, to me, the talk has to stand, because otherwise it looks like a committee has changed it. You know, to me, this is one of the most, this is one of the masterpieces of conference talks it's it's to me the best one that i in memory if you just take it as is it explains it all and it, it like i said before people I, we're not allowed to, to we're not allowed to admit we have doubts and questions and maybe we're our, our testimony is not always at the point where we know the church is true so when we when we read a talk like this or see a talk like this it helps us to see, okay, it's all right to sit back and take some time to figure things out. But we're not allowed to do that. I, I totally agree with you, Rock. Um, and James, just my, my thought on your point um, about we don't know who made the changes, that, that ties in perfectly to the recent incident with Elder Packer. Um, you know, there, there were far less words that were changed in the print version of the talk, and it wasn't re-recorded, but you can't imagine that Elder Packer didn't prepare his talk and think about his talk beforehand and then say it to all the members. Um, but then a few days later, the church can turn around and say, oh, no, look, we, we have a consistent position on homosexuality. Um, just go read his talk. It's, you know, we, we don't know where that change came from. Um, <laughs> and so it's, it's hard to give any weight to those words before or after. Mm, yes, well said. I guess I can understand that the brethren, you know, these are all people who work together for decades of their lives, and it's maybe a little awkward to publicly uh, say say that someone was wrong and correct them. Um, but if if their their if their main goal is to to make sure that the members understand what it is that they think we should believe and what should be taught, then uh, that's just something that that they need to do, even if it is uncomfortable for them personally to to correct one of their colleagues. Yeah, and it was probably pretty uncomfortable for Samuel the Lamanite to get up on that wall um, when people were, were shooting <laughs> shooting arrows and throwing rocks at him. Um, so, so I, I I totally understand what you're saying, but um, you know, from a from a perspective of, of trying to think that these people are are divinely inspired, it it makes it more difficult. Slam. <laughs> <laughs> Did I sound like I was getting a little too worked up there? <laughs> no, no, no. No, you're fine. Okay. I, I wanted before we before we end, I want to make um, one more point that I thought I thought just capped off this whole discussion. 
Um, and if you listen to the redacted audio, when he finishes his talk, what what are you guys know this? What are the last words that any anyone would say in their talk? The very last words. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. Okay, and then what comes after his Amen? Uh, that oh, the congregation will Amen. The congregation. So they've dubbed in the congregation saying um, Amen to his redacted talk, which um, to to me just just highlights this this whole idea because isn't the word Amen or isn't that us saying you know we agree? <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, the, the church can now just kind of tell us what we boy, agree with. Boy, that's that's profound because you're right. That was a big fake amen, and there was no one there actually saying it. No one there actually agreeing with these phony, redacted, changed words. Ah, oh, it's just awful. It's just awful. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I've... That, 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 that's a little troubling, but, um, you know, I mean, if you try and look at it from the point of view of somebody who is, you know, true-believing Mormon, you know, what, what are the, what are they going to say to that? I mean, they, 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 they won't really care, will they? Well, it's, you know... It's just, just like the sustaining vote. They just kind of assume everyone's raised their hands, but you can't really tell who's raised their hands in that big conference center. <laughs> you know, so if, 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 you, if you take this issue... Just you know, next next time you're in church and you turn to somebody next to you and say, "Hey, you know, did did, did you know that this happened?" Or you have this discussion with your bishop, or you have this discussion with you know, like what what do you expect? Just a general member of the church, what, what do you expect their reaction would would be to this? Yeah, well, what I get from my blog, my blog addresses these types of questions quite a bit. The things that are perhaps uncomfortable but true, and. Uh, <sighs> Well, let me just interject. A major reason that I write my blog is to keep people from just walking, throwing their hands up and walking away. I, I, there are, uh, you know, you can look and you can see that people are human and they make mistakes and well, they're just human and they're fallible. But what I get from, I don't hear a lot from uh, readers who disagree, but I've heard from a few people I know, and essentially they tell me, you know, I just, I'm trying to keep my testimony. I just don't want to think about these things. I don't. I, I'm not comfortable. Uh, that's what I've heard over and over. I'm not comfortable reading what you write, Rock, because yeah. it's it's. And they don't use the word challenging. It's not challenging. So essentially, they want to set it aside and uh, go merrily along. And so fine. But but well, I, I would are, think that the people who are already on the internet reading your blog are just—they're already asking for trouble. <laughs> right, but, but, but I've read some of those comments on there where people are saying, "What do you hope to accomplish by posting this?" Yeah, you, you know, like like the the by by pointing out what actually happened in general conference would be somehow threatening to the church um, is is just interesting yeah. in and of right. itself. Didn't uh, Joseph Smith say that one of the fundamental principles of Mormonism is to seek out truth wherever it may be? So. Um, how can us learning the truth about yeah what happened in general conference be be threatening to precisely yeah that's yeah. all I'm trying to do I'm trying to uh, for myself I, basically what I'm doing on my blog is sharing things that I've learned over time and isn't this interesting and did you know this didn't really happen uh, but yeah, I don't want to digress here but some people just don't want to know they well, just want, they like the milk 
It, it reminds me of uh, Orson Scott Card put out a book. I think it's called Mormon Speak, which is like the the Devil's Dictionary, yeah. you know, for Mormonism. Yeah. And 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 he's he's got one definition, which is the uh, the Golden Question, and it's um, what do you know about Mormons? And it's and the definition is uh, oh, it's something like. Um, a, a question that Mormons love to ask non-Mormons, but very rarely ask themselves. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, I mean, but, so I, I mean, I, I think people in in just in general members of the church, if they found out something like this, I, I really don't think it would make much of a, a a difference in their lives. I think that they'd probably just you know slough it off and say, oh well, they probably had good reasons for it, and let's just focus on doing what we're supposed to do and not get hung up on these things. Right, I, I think you're right. I actually, in my research preparing for this, I came across a discussion on a more apologetic uh, website where they discussed the, the changes in the talk, and uh, most of them agreed that the, the, the changes weren't substantive, that there, there wasn't any real substantive difference, and all that the changes did oh. was clarify the original meaning and make the talk more logical because the original talk was kind of muddled and difficult to understand. Yeah, and yeah, uh, I, I, just couldn't, I couldn't see that. <laughs> I don't see that from reading the, the differences. The differences seem sub- pretty substantial to me, but yeah. um, if that's what you want to hear and want to see, then it's easy to convince yourself, I suppose. Well, you know what I would say? I, 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 this is a point I'd like to make. Forget the forget the controversy. Forget the fact that it was a redone. Forget the fact that uh, you know his original talk was redacted and, and this whole scandal. The original talk is so worthwhile that I would encourage anyone to read it, read it through, you know, don't pay attention to, to the redactions, just read it through, it's, it's a masterpiece, I love it, I love it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and, and, and you know, the, the redacted version really does pale in comparison. It, it, it really does feel like its soul has been sucked out. I, I had a point, just because we're talking about, um, what you're talking about, sucking the life out of things, and there was... There was one more quote that was um, completely deleted. It was the second half of a sentence about midway through the talk. Um, the original words were that the church, every church member has not only the opportunity, right, and privilege to receive a personal witness regarding gospel principles and church practices, and then here's the second half, but has the need and obligation to obtain such assurance by exercising his free agency thereby fulfilling one purpose of his mortal probation. That whole second part, the need and obligation to obtain such assurance by exercising his free agency, thereby obtaining, thereby fulfilling one purpose of his mortal probation was just completely removed. Um, and, and in light of um, Elder Oaks's recent talk about the priesthood lines and the personal line, yeah. that just seems to fit in perfectly. If you don't believe exactly what the brethren say, then you can't have that as, um, you know, any kind of inspiration, or the spirit can't lead you to say anything different than what the brethren say. So it's it's somewhat your your free agency is quite limited. I I wonder if in 1984, Word Perfect had just come out, <laughs> and they figured out how to like do a word search, and they just like went through this looking for free agency, and every time it popped up, they just redacted it. <laughs> You're right. Almost every instance of that word Almost was taken out of the talk. Every instance yeah. where free agency comes up is just boom, gone. Uh, Jesse, what you said, um, I think, goes to just it, it shows the, um, the 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 point about free agency shows just I think a general change in church culture that 
we, there's only one set way to believe. Uh, in the early days of the church, uh, Brigham Young taught the Adam-God doctrine, and Orson Pratt very publicly uh, disagreed with him and in public made speeches against it. Um, in the early 1900s, um, B.H. Roberts, made he had theories about pre-Adamites, uh, uh, human-type beings existing before Adam, and Joseph Fielding Smith publicly disagreed. And, uh, you know, we, the church members could see that general authorities could disagree on certain fundamental aspects of doctrine and still mm-hmm. be considered general authorities. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that Brigham Young actually lost out and eventually Orson Pratt's interpretation became the official interpretation of the church. <laughs> and by yeah. taking away that kind of, that, that ability of general authorities to publicly disagree sometimes and not always speak with, with the same exact teachings and voice, then I think that removes a lot of the richness, richness from the church and a lot of uh, the, the ability of members to, to choose and to use their free agency by, by seeing the different viewpoints. Yeah, yes, I because... agree. And I also think that makes the church more brittle in the long run because although, the, you know, the, the ideas might be more um, firmly in, uh, situated in people's minds, you know, just to what you alluded to there, take something like biological evolution that is just eating people alive right now. Um, you know, because the church has to keep has to maintain all those all those doctrines that are associated with that. Um, it's just it's just a really big issue. So, sorry, go ahead, Rock. What were you saying? Well, I'm just wondering why 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 we aren't allowed to have debate within the church and work things out and talk things. Out. The, the Orson Pratt Brigham Young debates were fascinating, and the and the members could take from what from them what they wanted, and it didn't. It wasn't going to make the church fall apart. All right, and any final comments on this? My final thought is that um, if I could summarize this, this whole thing from, from 10,000 feet, it just goes to how we describe ourselves and how we describe our belief. So very often within, um, within the LDS community, people say, we're members of the church, or those people are non-members. And we, we talk about it. We talk about our our beliefs in terms of our affiliation to an institution, which is very much a temporal, earthly institution. You know, it's a legal entity. In rather than say we're followers of Jesus Christ, or yes, yeah. we we are seekers after truth, and we embrace all truth where we find it. So, but instead, we we are members of the church, and we we align, we put our allegiance to them, and then. You know, kind of, we hitch onto their wagon, and then that that takes us where we want to go. Yeah, I, I think I think we could have a a, a whole nother discussion on uh, <laughs> church and gospel. The, yeah. the the distinctions there. I I think that's a rich topic to to explore, but we don't have time to to get into that more uh, tonight. But uh, any any other comments from either you, James, or Rock? I guess I just uh, want to say, um, I guess this shows that my sympathies lie with the first version of his talk, but I'd encourage everyone to, to go to the website and actually uh, click on the link and re- compare the two versions for yourself and uh, see what you think. Yep. Yes, exactly. You, uh, as I mentioned in my blog, read them and, and decide for yourself which one you feel is inspired from on high. Yeah. It's, it's clear to me that the first one is. By the way, may I plug in my blog? Sure. name once again is Pure Mormonism, and you can just Google that. It's actually puremormonism.blogspot.com, but it's easier to just Google the words Pure Mormonism. Sure. We'll, we'll, we'll put a link up uh, oh, for, okay. for you as well. And, and uh, did, did, you, did you ever get that cheese delivered, that tin of cheese? Yes, it's great. Was it good? <laughs> That's great. Right. I, I don't think we discussed this, but the uh, analogy I, I mentioned was as I was writing my piece, I was actually 
excitedly awaiting a visit from my UPS driver. His name is John. He he's the same driver all the time, and I couldn't wait for him to come. But oh, but it really wasn't John that I was waiting to see. It was what he was bringing me. And the analogy I made there was that that for as as much as I value John's place, it's not John that I'm that I was all a dither about. It was the cheese he was bringing me. But, and so, yes, it was It was canned cheese. Quite expensive. It comes down to about $5 a can, but it stores for 25 years, and it's good. <laughs> yeah, and so so the analogy was that the cheese is the gospel, and yes. John is the church. John is the delivery system. He brings, delivery me, system yeah. he brings me the things that edify me and feed me. Yeah. But he is not... He's not where, you know... I just... I constantly see people saying, isn't it wonderful how we have uh, prophets and apostles to guide us these days? But if you ask them for any specific guidance, they're a little nebulous about it. So they're focusing on the delivery system, and that's what I'm trying to say. They're in love with the the, the driver instead of the gospel and in love with Jesus himself. Let's come unto Christ. Let's look at what the church is delivering is and saying thank you for the church the church deserves our effusive thanks but that's not the gospel the gospel of Jesus <laughs> all right Jesus of Nazareth all right real Jesus that's right <laughs> okay guys all right uh, well thank you guys for for joining in I think it's been a good discussion and uh, as always To do our alma mater, we must do our alma mater. When I was a little bitty boy, my grandmother bought me a cute little toy. Silver bells hanging on a string. She told me it was my ding-a-ling-a-ling-o. This is Hillary, Matthew, Ryan, Carol, Keith. and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? You know what I heard? I heard I hear two girls over here singing in harmony. That's all right, honey. This is a free country. Live like you want to live, baby. Yeah. Ain't nobody going to knock it, darling. Mm-mm. Yeah, freedom. Yes, sir. There's one guy right over here singing mine, too. That's all right, brother. Yes, sir. You got a right, baby. Ain't nobody going to bother you. Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.